Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I am Chris Steyerwald. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to L. Inkstained Retros, where we break down what's going wrong and, by the way, what's going right with the American news media. Oh, Eliana Johnson, election week. We can heave a sigh of relief. He- heave something, that it's, I'll yes, tell you what. that it's over. <laughs> don't, don't be sorry that it was over. Be happy that it ever happened at all. I am heaving a sigh that it's over. But welcome to the post-election edition of Wretches. We can start with we're just with starting so we're not, much discussion we're, of election coverage. We're not even going to talk about the Inkstained Wretches newsletter, Hiel Wretches. We're not going to talk about McRib coverage. We're not going to talk about what you ate on election night. What did I eat on election night? We had a big Mexican spread. Oh, not, oh did you have, did the Free Beacon gather together or did you do this at home? Oh, we were all in the office. Oh, what did you do? Did you have like special coverage? We were all working. That's so fun. We had a big Mexican spread, and one of our one of my colleagues even brought in a frozen margarita mixer. Oh, we like the machine? There. Yeah, 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 Ooh. machine. So I'd never wow. seen Wow, very impressive. Okay, I like it. We, at News Nation in Chicago, it was a real, the, the, the culinary situation was kind of dire. And then, like, you run off set, and you have to eat really fast. Now, Chris Cuomo was smart. He just ate apples. He ate apples throughout the evening. Shared with me a few slices of apple, which I was grateful for. But that like, does not seem like a Steyerwald election spread at well, all. Well, if you're going to be on television I don't think I've ever for seen ten you hours, eat fruit. Well, fruit is the worst, but we all know it's like if you want After sugar, vegetables, fruit is. The I worst. love vegetables, but fruit is a lie. The no, I mean I like fruit. It's fine. Sorry, fruit, but except for you, honeydew melon. You're the you're the devil. Oh my gosh! Yeah, honeydew. That, that is like the. Honeydew, because they're like, you want a fruit salad, and you're like, this is just yeah, honeydew, honeydew melon honeydew. with chunks like, of pineapple in it. soft grapes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bad grapes. Grapes don't belong in anything. Grapes are fine, but don't put grapes in anything. But so they would say, okay, we've got a long break here. You've got four minutes. You can eat. And so you run out into the hallway, and you're, I'm eating a Italian beef sandwich from Portillo's carryout in a hallway, and it was not good. It's not a good situation. Well, I had the whole night to shove my face, so. I want. I'm eager to dive into election coverage. I just want to do a little soliloquy off top. That I just want to say, forsooth, a mea mea culpa, which is that every two years, the day after the election, I tell myself, next election, I am not going to be seduced by the media Ah. narratives. I'm not going to pay attention to any of the polls. I'm going to think for myself, and without fail. I am seduced and surprised and, you know, I, it is like kind of amazing to me that there's this industry of experts, you know, you you and me kind of sort Easy. of included, you, you more than me, but I just am left feeling that, you know, nobody knows anything. No. All of us, okay, you, you can... I was right. I think the most important okay. thing we can take away okay. from I all of feel, this is my, act, I'm gonna my speak, correctness. I'm going to speak for myself. Okay. I don't know anything. Anything. I am going to be, you know, super humble that even those of us like me who live and breathe this stuff. But you don't do, 
you do. No, I'm not. You, you're not. Holes you're not. In, and... You're you're not a cephologist, right? No. Right. So, I don't even know what that means. So, but but so actually, obviously I'm not that. Actually, actually, cephology. The term cephology. Nate Moore is a is a cephologist par extraordinaire. I'm like a fake cephologist, but cephology comes from the set the 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 paraphs, the cephs that were the little pebbles that the Greeks voted with. So cephology is about the study of actual elections and how they go. And that's the data part. And that's the, that, that's the limit of political science. Everything else that masquerades as political science is really political philosophy, but that's the, the counting and the doing and the, the, that part. And you're not one of those. I am definitely not that, but you are, but you are in policy and you are in Washington and you are in how Congress works and you're deep, but you, you shouldn't feel bad about not. Well, okay. So my first item and, and we'll link it in our newsletters. I wanted to Is this um, on the front shout page? out. It's on the front page. Yes. Yeah, sorry. I didn't even announce the front page cause I'm too eager to get to it is so Judd Legum writes this left-wing newsletter that, that I think is is good on a lot of days. And this one, he writes that political media is broken. And this is my gripe with my, you know, my industry, the industry I know, which is that so many of the narratives in political media, you know, the Times, the Post, the Free Beacon, all of us are reverse engineered from polling data. So we see that, you know, X candidate or Y candidate is up in the polls. And then like we look to find a data to explain that. And I think it leads to a lot of like shock when the polls turn out to be wrong and then all our narratives about what's happening are wrong. And so Judd's newsletter this morning, I clicked through because the title was Political Media is Broken. And he says, Even if media predictions were correct, they represent a style of political reporting that's dysfunctional. Campaign coverage is increasingly focused on anticipating who will win through polling analysis, which I think is very true. And he says, but politics is unpredictable and polls are not nearly precise enough to predict the outcome of a close contest. He thinks this is a new thing? Not new. Okay. But, But I'm saying I've now experienced this, you know, 2016. 2018, 2020. But 2010 uh, and 2006 and 2004 and 2000. Like, this is the, the. I'm speaking for me. Okay, okay. Speaking okay. for me. All right. I, so I, I like this. But then you, so you push back, like, why you don't think. No, I, look, so what happened this time was pretty obvious. So in the springtime, it was clear that it was going to be a good Republican year. Democratic enthusiasm was low. And Republicans had a substantial lead in the generic ballot, and they were it was shaping up to be a very typical midterm year. And in a very typical midterm year, the party in power takes a beating. The average loss of seats for the party in power in a midterm year since 1982, and the president's first midterm is 28 seats. Democrats only have a five seat, only could afford to, to lose four seats. And so it was pretty obvious that it was going to be way more than that. And there it was. The race changed in the summertime. And what Judd Legum could have done would have been gone and found, and I mocked them because I know they were there. I know they were there because I, on this very podcast, mocked them because the press then in the summertime overreacted to a shift in the polls that occurred after the Roe decision or after the, the Dobbs case and after Joe Biden did his Dracula's Castle speech and after student loan forgiveness and Democrats engaged. And by the way, another big reason Democrats engaged was Donald Trump. So in August and into September, the Democrats roared back 
and the race got competitive. And of course, what did the political press do? Overstated what was going, it's happening, the row effect. It's more important than anything that's ever happened. I'm like, I don't know if I would say that. Like, I don't know, guys. But again, you're, you're kind of making my point that the coverage is downstream of polls. Right. And, and then- it's too heavy. And then in October, when the Republicans were like, I mean, I wish I could share all the texts- and phone calls that I received in the hours before the polls closed on Thursday. I, it'll be March before I can eat all the steak dinners that I am that I won from Republicans in the past week. Half so, of the texts were probably for me, Chris. No, you'd never do. Yes. You never do. You, you're not one I, of them. I was one of them. Well, you're I didn't actually text you, but I was definitely, you could lump me into this so it, so And you wouldn't be doing me So in justice. the first two weeks of October... Republicans caught back up, right? So Democrats had like moved ahead in through September and then the first two weeks of October. And we saw it in our average for subscribers to Starwaldisms. You saw the average and the Republicans moved back up into the four. And I said, okay, so this is looking more like a typical midterm again. And I said, so the Republicans, the, part of their problem is that there aren't that many swing seats anymore. Not like, certainly there aren't a bunch of seats like there were in 2010 when Democrats had won so many seats in 2008. People forget Barack Obama won Indiana and North Carolina uh, in 2008. Democrats won in places. He had long coattails and won in places they shouldn't have. So 2010 was so big in part because of that. But anyway, so we say, okay, it's going to be somewhere between 15 and 25 seats. It's going to be about 20 seats, and the most likely outcome in the Senate is R plus one. And I said, good. But two things happened. Republicans freaked the freak out. It's happening. We're going to win everything. A guy's telling me, like, we're going to win in New Hampshire. One guy said, he goes, look, the fact that you don't consider Patty Murray vulnerable. I'm like, I don't think the Republicans are going to win a Senate seat in Washington State, man. And he's like, you're just, this is like Arizona all over. You're just blind. You don't want to see, I'm like, okay. Like, you know, but if Republicans win the state, the Senate seat in Washington, they're going to win not only Pennsylvania and Georgia, but they're also going to win Arizona and Nevada. They're going to win New Hampshire because Washington is more Democratic than all of those states. So you're telling me the Republicans are going to have 56 or 50, and he's like, totally possible. Okay, I guess so. So Democrats and the mainstream media, and yet I repeat myself, ah, ha, ha. that was for you. That was an Eliana joke. I thought that would at least get a smile. But the press was stung so badly by their miss in 2020 and 2016 that they have become shell-shocked. And this is what Judd Legum, who is a super progressive, is really complaining about, right? Because in the past, Democrats were insensate to the possibility of big Republican wins, right? They missed it. In 2020, the coverage was like, Biden's going to win. The, the, you know, they're going to win the House. They're going to win everything. It's over. And then it was like, murp, murp, murp. And so shell-shocked by that, or snake bit. The coverage was screwed up the other way this time because as that red wave started forming, I mean, Chris Saliza, who is the worst, right? Like, who is the worst <laughs> in of all of the political punditry? He is the, he's the best combination of conventional wisdom crossed with a sneering contempt for his audience. That It's just an amazing, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing feat that he's able to achieve. Even Chris Saliza comes out with like, why this election is going to be great for Donald Trump, blah, 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 blah. Because everybody's looking for hot takes and they're gun shy. So that's how that happened. And we watched it happen in real time. Okay. Up next, we have this wonderful piece. Mm. 
Like, mm. we'll rewind. Mm. We'll walk us into this. So How good. the New York Times prepared us for election night. I think this came out in the uh, afternoon. That's right. It's how you know that what they were expecting. Yeah, yeah. What to expect when you're expecting a, yeah, a, yeah. a devastating defeat for your party. The New York Times at New York Times posted, what time was it posted? 6.05 p.m. on November 8th. So as people were bracing for the election day for to come. For the tsunami. For the tsunami. Five ways to soothe election stress. Try five-finger breathing. Trace outside of your hand with your pointer is finger. Is this not the most, like, When you trace up, like breathe the, in. It's like the platonic ideal of a New York Times article. And when you trace down, breathe out. Cool down. Plunge your face into a bowl with ice water <laughs> for 15 to 30 seconds. I would plunge Move. my face into a bowl of vodka. Too. Move. Even a walk around the block can offer some <laughs> relief for an easy mind. Breathe like a baby. Focus on expanding your belly as you breathe, which can send more oxygen to the brain. Limit your scrolling. Consider plotting out specific times when you will look for election updates. (laughs) Now, the last one is fine, and I don't mean to make light of the fact that, oh, because Twitter's open, I saw, tell you how old I am, I looked over here and I saw what was trending, and the number one thing was Gallagher, and I assumed it was the watermelon-smashing comedian from the 1970s and 1980s. It's something else. But... The idea that you would be so upset over a really unimportant election. When I say that this midterm was unimportant, I want to. I want people to understand. I say this is a person who has devoted his entire professional life to politics. This is a meh, right? The world will little note nor long remember who won New York twelve. Right? It's not like it's. <laughs> it's just a midterm, and it's. It's not like Congress was doing much before. It's whatever, like relax. So if you need to five finger breathe and plunge your face into a bowl of ice water in order to get through the election, you should not just have coping. You should you should think about unsubscribing and don't vote, right? It's, it's not necessary. It's not mandatory. You can step aside. Up next, we have a piece, a New York Times piece, but Dylan Byers at Puck also did it on coverage of the coverage Mm -hmm. and the headline at the new york times is a rare win for msnbc over cnn in the election night ratings battle and the background is that for the first time in many many years wolf blitzer did not anchor cnn's election coverage instead jake tapper was put in that anchor seat consistent with cnn having put jake tapper in their primetime lineup he's going back now to daytime after the election, but he was in that seat and essentially it didn't work. And I'm going to read from the New York Times article, MSNBC, which featured viewer favorites like Steve Kornacki and Rachel Maddow, was seen by 3.2 million people, a bigger primetime audience than CNN, and its first ever victory over CNN on any midterm or presidential election night. CNN usually draws big numbers for a major political event, but in its first year since 2004 without Wolf Blitzer at the helm, CNN, which is undergoing a rocky leadership transition, dropped to second to last among the big news networks with 2.6 million viewers. CBS had the smallest overall audience of the big networks. CBS had smaller audience than CNN? Yep. Oh, man. So what do you make of it, Chris? Well, I make of it that people didn't watch TV very much. The numbers are low. Like Fox had 7 million viewers. That's poor. They sh- that should be 10. That would have been 10 or 11 million viewers back in the day. I think... Like the And they get to that. Uh, more and more Americans have eschewed traditional TV for streaming services and online media outlets, et cetera. But 
But what do you make of just the pure like gamesmanship between the networks, which is less important than the overall transition away from TV, I realize. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I think it's going to be hard. So MSNBC has a good product with Steve Kornacki, and they're really helped by having NBC News. So they have the affiliate network around the country. Like the reason that I really enjoyed our coverage on News Nation was that we have these affiliates all over the country. Mm -hmm. So there's reporters in all the places. You're getting on the ground stuff. We had Decision Desk HQ, and Chris Cuomo was giving me slices of apple like an animal in a, an enclosure at the zoo. So it was good. NBC has a lot of that, has has that in spades, right? Because they have NBC News, and then they have the great Steve Kornacki, and it's good. I think John K CNN needs to redo their election night coverage. It needs a hard reboot. They need to figure out how to get Harry Etten in the game more. John King is not good. And he, like, it's not that he's not good. It's just really wooden. And Kornacki's so excellent that they, they need to rethink their election night coverage. And hopefully for them, this will be a time to, to get real. I have a, a bigger question for you, okay. which is CNN, of course, is trying to offer it. They're making an attempt to offer a, a nonpartisan down the middle product, whereas MSNBC has Rachel Maddow hosting there at night. Do you take from this that there isn't as much of an audience actually for that and that we're heading to a world in which polarized outlets dominate? That you go it to you go to MSNBC for Rachel Maddow or you go to Fox News, you know, for their opinion you know, for, for their people to anchor, but there isn't actually an audience for the down-the-middle analysis. You remind me of a great book I read. Oh, wait, a great book I wrote. No, The Broken yes, News. Yes, please buy Broken News. Broken News, How the Media Rage Machine Divides America and How You Can Fight Back. The Truth. Available on Amazon or your local bookseller. Or buy two in case you wear out your first copy. Yes, siloed news and preferences for that stuff. And I think to a certain degree that that's fine. I don't think it's wrong impartiality and fairness are two different things. It doesn't matter if Rachel Maddow is hosting MSNBC, hosting on MSNBC, if she is willing to tell viewers the bad news, right? And she doesn't lie. That was what the whole thing at Fox, that was, that was the problem at Fox in 2020, right? Was that there was unhappiness among the viewership about us telling them what happened. And that's the, you have to be willing to pay that price. Right. And that's what it comes down to is you can do whatever and you can have whatever partisan do the results. Because by the way, people are getting the news people who are, I guarantee you, I guarantee that the people watching MSNBC were watching it with their phone in their hand and their iPad out. And mm. they were getting results more than one place. They were at new, the, by the way, who won election coverage again this year? NewYorkTimes.com, right? Nate Moore agrees with me. Like me, all night, I'm sure Nate had one of his browser windows open to the New York Times. Nate's like, I was on Netflix looking at you like. No, Nate is. <laughs> I was watching Nate, cartoons on Netflix. Nate Nate may have the footwear of a much cooler person. Colin was on a hike. He, Colin, <laughs> Colin was definitely making s'mores yeah. outside of <laughs> a lean-to. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> outside of a lean-to, he was making s'mores. Just feel dr dr drinking a artisanal Manhattan out of a Nalgene bottle. And he's like, just feels good to be away from it all. But I can guarantee you that Nate Moore is a nerd underneath and was at NewYorkTimes.com throughout election night. The New York Times is great. Their needles are great. Their vote updates are great. And so they won.
Why don't you hit the CNN fact check quick and then. Oh, I just, I just feel uh, obliged. Let, let me do a flag post, as we call it in writing. Okay. Flag post that we're going to get into more of this and we're going to get into election coverage more in our obsession. So so we'll circle this back to this. This is just in as part of my ongoing yes. effort okay. to tell Eliana when people that she is skeptical of do things that are journalistically correct. So I just flag all these and here's CNN's fact check. Biden's midterm message includes false and misleading claims. Uh, and there was also, by the way, the Washington Post did the bottomless Pinocchios for Biden on, I forget which claim, but it was like the, his Biden's first bottom. Oh, no, it was about flying 15,000 miles with Xi Jinping. And it was like, no, you never flew anywhere with Xi Jinping. What are you talking about? And Biden keeps repeating it and, and exaggerating it. So they're, they're doing things. They're doing things. Just saying. Okay. <laughs> Glad to see them dusting off the cobwebs and uh-huh. getting off the bench to fact check old Joe uh, alongside the New York Times covering his gaffes. But what about John Podoritz? What about him? The cover of the New York Post. Hit Front us. page. This is the our wood. So we wanted to, Chris and I wanted to talk about first election <clears throat> coverage, but you know, of course, the day after the elections, we are now in 2024 primary season. And so up next, we just wanted to talk about a little bit about the emergent 2024 primary on the Republican side and what we're seeing. Because, you know, the the conservative media as proxy for like, you know, where things are going, I think is quite interesting. So hit it. Hit it, Chris. J-Pod gets the wood for the New York Post today. Trumpy Dumpty with a picture of Donald Trump. In the in as Humpty Dumpty, Don, who couldn't build a wall, had a great fall. All the GOP's men can all the GOP's men put the party back together again. And Pod's piece, which is very good. Here's how Donald Trump sabotaged the Republican midterms. So here's Pod making the very accurate case that Donald Trump was very costly for Republicans in their midterm fizzle which I think, and we'll talk more about the fizzle in my obsession. But as you point out, this is of a piece with what the Wall Street Journal has been writing. Several uh, editorials, but the most pointed one has the headline, Trump is the Republican Party's biggest loser. And, you know, but there there have been several over the past few days that make clear that, like, the Wall Street Journal editorial board is moving past Trump. Yeah, and they love them and some Ron DeSantis. Murdoch, Murdoch world is is moving past Trump. Well, I've heard that one before. I have heard that one before. Yeah. Do you think that think it sticks this time? I don't know. I guess it'll depend on whether Trump. Is, it's an effort. Yeah, it's an effort. Well, if if as long as the Republican Party can't figure out what to do about Donald Trump, they will continue to suck, and that's just the truth. And it doesn't mean whether it doesn't mean whether you like Trump or don't like Trump. The reality, the electoral realities of 2020 and 2022 make it pretty plain that. And I think also there was the first fiction, which is that only Trump could have beaten Hillary Clinton. I think a lot of people would have beaten Hillary Clinton. I think Hillary Clinton was a very unpopular politician. And of a piece with this is Mike Pence Woof. out with an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that Woof. is taken from his book. And the journal publishing the op-ed and it's it's the part of the book where he talks about his interactions with Donald Trump in and around January 6th but it seems we'll link the op-ed but you know he makes clear that he you know he tried to stand up to Trump on January 6th he obviously didn't do what Trump wanted but it, it is there is like a certain softness and tenderness that I think he tries to like toward Trump 
that he tries to affect in this piece. And I, I think you have to read it to try to like nail down on the tone he's trying to strike. But obviously this is a part of his, this is his opening gambit in a primary campaign that's done in the pages of the Wall Street Journal. Well, let me tell you something. This is the corniest stuff I ever, like I know Mike Pence is corny and I got it. So I want to read to you the closing lines from Mike Pence's thing. Oh my gosh. It's so ridiculous. He goes, he says the following. He's talking about like, and he talks about, he trashes Trump. It's a thorough thrashing of Trump. Though he does leave some interesting space where he keeps talking about how, I wanted to hear debate about all of the reasonable complaints that people, I, I, I had questions to him like, uh-huh. Okay, bro. But I love this at the end. On January 14th, the day after President Trump was impeached for the second time, I stopped by the Oval Office. The night before, he had unequivocally denounced the violence at the Capitol and called for calm and national unity. I congratulated him on his address. I know you'd like it, he said. He seemed discouraged, so I reminded him I was praying for him. Don't bother, he said. As I stood to leave, he said, it's been fun. A privilege, Mr. President, I answered. Yeah, with you. Mm -hmm. Walking toward the door leading to the hallway, I paused, looked the president in the eye, and said, I guess we will just have to disagree on two things. What? I referred to our disagreement about January 6th and then said, I'm also never going to stop praying for you. He smiled. That's right. Don't ever change. No. I will just say, flatly, Mike Pence, that is not how that went. Donald Trump did not say it like that and it did not you may remember it that way i'm not accusing mike pence of lying but this is like if the hallmark channel remade the west wing this is very this is very corny and hilarious to me but anyway i had to i had to make fun of it up next (laughs) we have the new york times giving twitter the treatment in a piece with the headline resistance to misinformation is weakening on twitter a report found oh boy and This is an entire piece about a report by academics. Researchers at the Fletcher School at Tufts University said in a report that, quote, early signs show the platform is heading in the wrong direction under his leadership, referring to Elon Musk, at a particularly inconvenient time for American democracy. So, yeah. Woof. Further comment. Twitter is not real life. Don't tweet. Speaking of which. Oh, yes. Also the New York Times. This is our Twitter bundle. Molly Jong, uh, headline, how Molly Jongfast tweeted her way to liberal media stardom. Please comment. Uh, we should point out, Erica Young, Jong? Jong. Jong. Erica Jong, her mother, sold 30 million copies, 30 million copies of a feminist, it's it's a novel, it's, I, I did not make it all the way through, but it's a, it's about, it's about sexy times for feminists. It's about owning your sexuality as a feminist lady. And it, of course, was like catnip for 1970s ladies. And that's her mom. And the New York Michael Grinbaum wrote a long, a long piece. I read the whole thing. Did you? Okay, yeah, well, then you yeah, talk about it. I read the whole it. thing. I didn't make it. My takeaway was how to tweet your way to liberal media stardom it involves, it involves having a famous mother and being part of, like, you know, Manhattan high society and spending an inordinate amount of time on Twitter fuming about Donald Trump really helps to have the starting point of 
born in a silver spoon with your in your mouth, basically, and like connected to all the Manhattan elite who can then praise you for expressing all the views they hold on Twitter. And, you know, now she works at the Bulwark and yada, yada, yada. It was it's a, Oh, she's at the Bulwark? Yeah. Why is she at the Bulwark? She's a liberal. Oh, I But know. you repeat yourself, Oh, they, 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 they include some tweets in here they, about how she became, what did they, a celebrity? A mainstream, what do they call her? How Molly Jong fast tweeted her way to liberal media stardom. Her stardom was built on tweets like this. Democrats continue to bring a stuffed animal to a knife fight. Yeah. <laughs> Like, I mean, it's just stop it. Philippe Reigns, a former senior aide oh, to the, Hillary Clinton. Oh, the people Clinton. at the party are so good. Can it's you so list awesome. the attendees at the party that they attend and write about? Is It's really great. The writer E. Jean Carroll, who had recently accused Mr. Trump of sexual assault, was engrossed with conversation with George T. Conway III, husband of Kellyanne Conway, when Ms. Griffin, in an a crew Valentino dress, approached. <laughs> yeah. Who has Mrs. Muller's number? She asked mischievously, mischievously, laying out a listeria style, a listeriata style scheme in which the wife of the special counsel, Robert S. Muller III, with, would withhold physical relations from her husband until he divulged damning details about Mr. Trump. Her planning was interrupted by the arrival of the Momofuku catering. This is the best party I've been to all year, Ms. Carroll said as she glided toward the slow roasted pork. Later, when she sued Mr. Trump for defamation, she hired a lawyer that Mr. Conway recommended to her that evening. Philippe Reigns, a former senior aide to Hillary Clinton, surveyed the room of liberal writers, comedians, and cable news green room habitués and compared the gathering to the TV show Lost. Shell-shocked survivors wandering a beach. If we all went down on a plane, who would get the obit, he asked. The consensus? Ms. Griffin! Please kill me now, please. If Does that sound like the worst party you could ever? I would, ra- I would. I would. I would rather eat a glass Coke bottle <laughs> than attend. I mean, though I do like the slow roasted pork at Momofuku. That, I'm not that gonna, does sound good. And that milk. And if they really got milk good. bar dessert, but like, yeah. if this was, this should be the people who made Reno 911 should make a parody show about these people. All right, we have NBC News's retraction of. The story on Paul Pelosi, which their correspondent, Miguel Almaguer. We talked about this when we were on the Megyn Kelly show. We did. So he went on the Today Show and said that he had new details about the attack and that, as it turned out, Paul Pelosi had opened the door, seeming to be uninjured by the attacker, and walked back inside his house toward the attacker. And as as a follow-up, NBC News took down the segment from its website, deleted a tweet promoting it, and did not did not offer an explanation. They just said, like, this segment didn't meet our reporting standards, but it had aired on the Today Show. Yeah. And so the Washington Post has a piece on this, the headline, NBC retracts erroneous Paul Pelosi story that fueled conspiracy theories. And there are people speaking on the condition of anonymity that essentially tell the reporter at the Post, Paul Fari, uh, that the sources were bad, basically. What I don't understand is, like, why can't anyone at NBC or the reporter go on the record here and tell us what happened? I guess. I don't know. I mean, I guess. They should They should say something. I understand why you wouldn't want to talk about something you screwed up, though. Isn't it incumbent on you to explain no, a they mistake? they should. They should explain their mistake. They should. It is true. And then they put their people out 
to I feel bad for him though. Of course. I mean, but you just it it stinks to make a mistake if that is it, in fact what happened. But and then, you know, they they slime people saying, "Oh, this fueled conspiracy theories." But their behavior, I think here, also fuels conspiracy theories because what they're doing is strange. Um and I think NBC News like airing something on the Today Show, pulling it down with no explanation of what reporting standards this didn't mean, uh, this didn't meet, and not making clear like, is this person going to be disciplined? What happened here at all? Like, this is you know one of the biggest shows in the country is is strange and just doesn't meet the mark. I mean, me. I I think this reporter failed, and he he should explain his failure. I agree, but I want to give the last word to this to my colleague Kevin Williamson at the Dispatch who has a great piece, Radical Kooks, which we will put in the show notes and in your newsletter, in your Ohio Retro's newsletter. And he says that this, the Washington Post promises to campaign against misinformation and fake news. It publishes serious political news and it also publishes horoscopes. And the nuts can find what they are looking for in one if they don't find it in the other. And the thing about, like, it is true, and I made the point last week about how we should all think about the rhetoric that we use, and we should be more careful, cautious, and earnest in what we do, and more sincere. But Kevin also makes the other correct point, necessary point here, which is that for the truly crazy— I totally agree with that. For the truly crazy, they will find things to be crazy about, and they cannot be stopped. They cannot be stopped. I mean, you know, we faked the moon landing. People were seeing this way back when. That brings us, Chris— to our style section. Oh, please. Yes. Hit it for us. I've got to I've got to get there. The seaplane from wait, if hold you on. like if you if you are not satisfied with a Cella service from New York to DC on the old Amtrak, we got something for you. For a mere three hundred and ninety five dollars one way. So for eight hundred bucks round trip, you can take a seaplane. From D.C. to New York and back. Round trip. Tell us more, Chris. It's something special. It's an Axios report. Axios. So here's Axios that was just purchased by Cox Communications for, how much was it? $500 million. Oh, yeah, Colin is over here wearing a new sweater purchased with the proceeds from this as a stakeholder. But allow me to read the following. Hey, Axios local bureau chief Kristen here. Can I tell you about the night last week when I found myself frantically weighing my MacBook on my bathroom scale? Boldface. What was happening? I was going to New York City for two nights, and I'd booked the new seaplane. <laughs> but it was only once I paid did I see the fine print. Your ticket includes 20 pounds of carry-on baggage, rollerboard only. Why it matters. Name a time you've packed 48 hours worth of New York City wardrobe changes in the equivalent of a diaper bag. Catch up. I hope she was going to Molly Jong Fast's party. I, me too. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> and it goes on from there. At $395 one way, tickets are money bag emoji, money bag emoji, money bag emoji. But trust me, you've never had this much fun getting to and from Manhattan. And it goes on and on and on from there. And I think, what is it about Axios that allows it to be purchased for this much money and include this kind of content. Like Jonathan Squan, Jonathan Squan, Jonathan Swan and Josh Crossauer, I would pay a lot of money for them. But reports that include snooty accounts of seaplane riding into lower Manhattan, woof. That brings us to our obsessions of the week. 
where we break down these stories that we can't get out of our heads. And Chris, we have, I think, the 2022 version of the infamous, back in 2015, the New York Times did a story about Marco Rubio owning, like, this tiny boat. Yeah, yeah, his um, boat. Tried to make it into a scandal. We have a duo of a Washington Post and a New York Times story about Ron DeSantis. Both of these even ran before election day, ran before election day. I think in anticipation that he would win re-election and become a somewhat formidable candidate for the Republican nomination for the presidency. And these two pieces about DeSantis are even more hilarious given his 20-point victory on Tuesday, but the first is a Washington Post deep dive Published November 4th on Ron DeSantis's wedding, and the headline is, Ron DeSantis, who denounced Disney, actually got married there. And, we and I'm, I'm sympathetic to that's so far so good. I am not sympathetic because the things that Disney did that caused Ron DeSantis to denounce the company, his wedding long predates that. No, no, I know, but I'm saying, like, I'm not opposed to a small story a 400 word story about Ron DeSantis it it provide it could and I, the story failed but it could provide interesting context for like oh Ron DeSantis really loved Disney before he was at war with Disney that could be interesting it is written as a gotcha story for sure. that and it's in the travel section it is <laughs> it is quite hilarious and the second one is the New York Times story uh pranks Parties and politics. This colon, is garbage. Ron DeSantis's year as a school teacher. The subheadline: At a private school 20 years ago, the future Florida governor was a popular history teacher and coach. But some students were taken aback by his comments on the Civil War and abortion. And the best part is a former student. I'm just going to read from the piece. Danielle Pompey. I, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Or to the best of my ability, remembers Mr. DeSantis, a Florida native and recent Yale grad, being an outsider like her, a New Yorker with a thick accent to match. But Ms. Pompey, who is black and was on an academic scholarship, said she felt that Mr. DeSantis treated her worse because of her race. Mr. Ron, Mr. DeSantis was mean to me and hostile toward me, said Ms. Pompey, who graduated in 2003. Not aggressively, but passively, because I was black. She recalled Mr. DeSantis teaching Civil War history in a way that sounded to her like an attempt to justify slavery. Like in history class, he was trying to play devil's advocate that the South had good good reason to fight that war to kill other people over owning people, black people, she said. He was trying to say it's not okay to own people, but they had property, comma, businesses. But what, and what's her her personal... She says she was a student, and but no, she said she said, "Oh, I can't find it right now." But talking about what Ron DeSantis said about the Civil War, and by the way, a lot of people say that right that doesn't make it accurate. The Civil War was fought over slavery. Sorry, that's just true. And if there were that, we would not have had a Civil War if it was a degree if it was an argument over something less fundamental. And I understand the states' rights argument. And I I went to college in the South. I got it. But slavery was inhuman and evil, and the Confederacy's attachment to it was the cause of the Civil War. But that's not a an unheard of position. What's evil in this story, what's wrong in this story is you have a woman who is making an accusation, calling a person racist, 
for treating her differently, and they offer no supporting evidence for it, period. Right? The supporting would, evidence was that he plays devil's advocate in class about the South fighting the Civil if War. If you want to accuse somebody of treating, of being a racist, you ha- the, if you were accusing him of theft or indecent exposure or some other serious moral failing, that's what the story's about, right? You don't put it in like paragraph eight and be like, oh, but one of, the, one of his black students says he was a bigot. You don't just throw that in. That's an accusation that if you're going to make, you have to... Full stop, either you're going to include it and it's what the story's about and you can prove it, but it's not a throwaway allegation. This is a real failure. You're up, Chris. Oh, what am I doing? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Wall Street Journal. How 22 midterm polls performed in Senate races. In the most competitive races, poll averages overstated Republican support. You're like, okay, yeah, that's probably true. Polling, state polling stinks. National polling did pretty well. What's your point? What's your point, Wall Street Journal? And then you see that Andrew Malika and Randy Yipe, great name, Randy, that they looked at how the polls performed. How did they, but what, how did they measure how the polls performed? They looked at the real clear politics average. Don't look at the real clear politics average. Don't look at the real, now I, I have gone to real clear politics every day this election season. Uh, I've gone there in 538 every day, pretty much, this election season. So has Nate Moore, because you have to see what the polls are. But their averages are not useful. The Real Clear Politics average hasn't been useful for, I don't know, 10 years. I don't, it's, it's, it, you could argue it's never been that useful because it includes trash polls. That's the problem with the Real Clear Politics average. Real Clear Politics, A.B. Stoddard, great. You should read her. Sean Trendy, you should read him. They provide an aggregation of stories that's interesting and fine. But their averages are not useful because their averages include trash polls. So let's go to Real Clear Politics right now. And thanks to Nate Moore. So they did okay on the generic ballot. We did better. But whatever, that's fine. But so on their Real Clear Politics average, they had, they were, Oz was going to win by half a point. No. <laughs> Fetterman won by four, more than four points. The uh, For Georgia, they said Herschel Walker would win by a point and a half. Warnock is up nine-tenths of a point right now. They had Blake Masters winning in Arizona. Kelly is probably going to win there. They had Laxalt up 3.4 in Nevada. Cortez Masto is on her way. By the time you hear, by the time you listen to this, Cortez Masto will probably have pulled ahead, I'm thinking. Maybe. Nate says maybe. Depends on how quick Colin gets it out. They had Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire up by 1.4 points. Hassan won by almost nine points. Here's the point. Real Clear Politics has a lot of polls in it. Here are their last Georgia Senate polls. A, A local poll for Fox from the local Fox affiliate. Two local polls. I would include both. Those would both probably meet our average if we were doing an average. But then they've got Trafalgar, East Carolina University, Data for Progress, Trafalgar, Data for Progress. These are partisan hack firms that don't use the right methodology. When we do our average for Steyerwaldisms at the dispatch, we only use high-quality polls that meet basic fundamental standards for doing this. What Real Clear Politics averages do 
is they take all the trash and th- and at 538 they try to wait them but it d- that doesn't really work either so if we look at election 2022 polls very quickly so in their average for generic ballot they're saved by one thing which is they've got a poll that we wouldn't have used either by the way that is democrats up five from the morning consult we don't use that poll because it's an online poll of the one two three four five six seven eight nine ten of the ten polls that are the last in their average only one two three four five so only half of them are worthwhile polls and real clear politics averages are not what you and obviously their senate map was off because they were just based on averages that were heavily weighted by bad polls to your point from earlier state polling stinks right don't overinterpret what these state polls are rely on history rely on trusted sources people like josh people like sean people like if i dare say me go to trusted sources and listen to what they're saying these polls are not going to do the job for you and for for the wall street journal to say that Real clear politics is a good representation of where polling is, is wrong. That's just not true because garbage polls fill up the, fill up these stacks because there's, there's money to be made by pumping out bad polls because you can get attention. That Politico poll is trash. It is always trash because it's a morning consult poll and morning consult has trash polling methodology. I'm sorry. Don't, don't waste your time looking at this stuff. Only go to the high-quality stuff. Harumph. That brings us to my favorite time of the week, Yay. which is reader mail. And first up, Chris, we have a note from Alan Rudder mm-hmm. in Texas. And Alan says, you guys keep bringing it each Friday. El Rechos joins Russ Roberts' Econ Talk as my favorite pod, neatly bookending each work week. As a native Texan and lover of smoked meats, I do not share the effulgent affection for the McRib that Chris and John Yu exclaim, chalking it up to the relative paucity of available real barbecue in D.C. and Northern California. My question for Chris is whether you have a chance to enjoy real ribs in Memphis, Kansas City, or Austin, whether you prefer yours dry or wet. For the edification of the perspicacious and effervescent Miss Johnson, the terms refer to whether you want your ribs served with or without barbecue sauces on them, which, by the way, I actually knew because I love barbecue. Yeah. And I am wet all the way. I I love a sauce. Well, I will just say, Ellen Rudder, I don't like the McRib in the place of barbecue. It's not like I'm it's not like I'm eating them. I'm like, oh, I can't get a hold of barbecue, so I'm gonna have the McRib. The McRib is not barbecue. People who watched Eliana and her two and a half, two to two and a half star rating for the McRib, but now Eliana can speak to this. That's not ribs, right? That's not like you don't it doesn't taste like you're eating barbecue, right? Ugh, no. So it's a weird thing. It's like cranberry sauce at Thanksgiving. It's not something that you eat all the time. It's a once a year thing, and it's interesting. It's weirdness. It's sort of like Japanese butter candy. You don't really want it, but when you're eating it, you're like, that's so weird that this exists. So the McRib is like that. How do I like my ribs? I like a St. Louis style rib, the the spare rib with lots of not too sweet sauce is great. I love the Memphis and Kansas City style ribs are both fantastic. The way I do my ribs is dry. 
And I like, I, I do a fairly spicy dry rub and I, I do them. I also do a St. Louis style at home when I smoke ribs at home. And my ribs, Alan Rudder of Prospiter, great, I love Texas place names, of Prospiter, Texas. When you are in D.C., I could even direct you to places where you could. It, one of the great tragedies of Washington, D.C., of course, is that in a city that used to be a majority African-American population and that is south of the Mason-Dixon line, that when I moved to Washington, D.C., there was nothing for barbecue. It was death. And there's, what do they call Salt Lake or, oh, it's, it's an Austin barbecue place. What's it called? It's over in Penn Quarter, Chinatown. Oh, that place is awesome. Hill Country. Hill Country. So there, there was Hill Country, but that's like a Disney-fied little it version is. of it's, it. There's a bunch of them in New York even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was about it. Now there's some more places and it can be done. So I will tell you, Mr. Rudder, that or, that it's it can be done. But no, I don't think the McRib is barbecue, sir. Okay. Up next, Chris, we have a check on you from John Scott who said, there may not have been fentanyl in Halloween candy, but... Say his place name. Say his town's name. I can't pronounce that. You do it. I believe it is Dallanaga, Georgia. I love it. That is awesome. Dallanaga, Georgia. John Um, Scott, keep it up. Okay. And he sends us an article headline, Metro Atlanta parents find sewing needles in kids' Halloween candy, police say. Yeah, I don't know. Two instances of sewing needles that are in the candy. I'm... I'm still sanguine. Chris is still sanguine I'm, about kids trick or treating. I'm I'm fine with it. Do you know the story of the Tylenol murders? No. So it's one of the great American media stories of all time. 1982. Here's Dr. Howard Markels Markles write up on this. Early in the morning of September 29th, 1982, a tragic medical mystery began. Sore throat and runny nose. It was then that Mary Kellerman, a 12 year old girl from Elk Grove Village. Suburb of Chicago told her mother and father about her symptoms. They gave her one extra strength Tylenol capsule that, unbeknownst to them, was laced with a highly poisonous potassium cyanide. Mary was dead by 7 a.m. Within a week, her death would panic the entire nation. And only months later, it changed the, the way we purchase. No. What? Purchase and consume over what? the counter medication. The same day, a 27 year old poster worker named Adam Janus of Arlington Heights, Illinois, died in what was initially thought to be a massive heart attack, but turned out to be cyanide poisoning as well. His brother and sister in law rushed him home to console their loved ones, both experienced throbbing headaches, not uncommon response, and they took an extra strength Tylenol, uh, two from the same bottle. Uh, they died two days later. So there was a, a, a mad murderer who had taken a syringe through the safety seal or I guess in those days it was cotton balls, and had poisoned, and I forget whether he was trying to kill someone particularly or whether it was just random, but I was seven years old when this happened, and I remember the national panic that ensued and how it changed the way everything worked in terms of how drugs were packaged and how the fact that you now need a blowtorch and a crowbar to open up a pack of any medication (laughs) in America and there were it, it's a great story. Well, I'll include it in the I'll include okay. it so you can read Perfect. it in the show notes. But these things have long, they, long cultural half lives. That brings us to Chris, your favorite time of the week, when I am forced to say something nice, and this week it will be no problem. But you are going to lead by example, and it will be no problem for you this week either. Forty chickens in four. Is it is it time for forty chickens it in is, forty it days? Is. 
which I just loved the story so much. New York Times highlights and lowlights this week. 40 Chickens in 40 Days, How Philadelphia Man Cheered His City. Alexander Tomiski was on an epic quest to give Philadelphia something to celebrate, but he said he felt relieved when he was done with the challenge. My body is ready to repair, he said. There was no confetti strewn across the streets of Philadelphia on Sunday morning, no chance of we are the champions or whiffs of smoke from celebratory fireworks. The city had lost both the World Series and the Major League Soccer Cup. Yeah, like anyone in Philadelphia noticed that they lost the Major League Soccer Cup. Sorry, Colin. I know you're definite. I know. I know. You're not? You're not a soccer fan? Nate? Nate probably. You You guys have woken up early to watch Premier League no, Soccer someplace. No, that's my husband does. We have plenty of sports. Tell, tell Patrick, we got plenty of sports so here in America. But at 12 p.m. on Sunday, at an abandoned pier along the Delaware River, a bearded man in a white sleeveless shirt sat at a makeshift table and stared intently at the plate as dozens gathered around. They braced for gusts of winds in order to cheer him in the final stretch of a self-imposed challenge to devour 40 rotisserie chickens in 40 days. Maybe the man, Alexander Tomiski, 31, would be the one to bring them the redemption after a miserable weekend filled with defeat. Eat that bird, they chanted. And he did. And it's just a great story. It's told in the right tone. The guy's funny. It's all funny. Kudos. My favorite item, items in the plural, is all the journalism being done around the cratering of the cryptocurrency giant FTX and and the fall of its 30-year-old billionaire or former billionaire, Sam Bankman-Fried. And I, it's obviously an industry that I don't know anything about, but it also seems that this was a young billionaire who was uh, became o- almost overnight one of the biggest donors to the Democratic Party. Is that right? Uh, yeah. yeah. I think he was number two this election cycle, um, gave over $5 million to Joe Biden in 2020, and really was making a uh, a play to become a big player in Washington, and but any anyway, this is a business story, and the the business journalism being done around what happened. He essentially the company was illiquid and had to be acquired. It was going to be acquired by a rival. The rival Binance then started doing due diligence and said, "We're not acquiring you," and so the company is completely cratered. And I've got a few links of things that I've been reading about this, but the story is fascinating. And I mean, the the thought, the first thought I had was like, "There's going to be a mini series about this, or a documentary, or some kind of like HBO Netflix series because um, it's it's fascinating." That's amazing. I had not heard. I had not tracked any of the crypto um, bro space. So this is fascinating and i i'm thank you for bringing it to my attention and that is all the time we have left for the news about the news if you have a story that you want us to talk about please email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com that's wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com this has been ink stained wretches from nebulous media find us on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts just search for wretches